find it hard to hope today. Maybe I should have never pushed him into ministry. Maybe this is all my fault. It all started with that blasted wedding. Yes, they were dear friends of ours, but would it really have killed them to go and buy more wine for themselves? (laughs) Why did Jesus have to step in? And why did I have to encourage him to step in? Woman, why do you involve me? That's what Jesus said to me when I suggested he intervene. Woman, why did I have to involve him? He was already gathering disciples. I knew the time was right for him to start making the difference he was born to make. But, oh, I should have kept my mouth shut. I should have let them run out of wine. It would have only meant a month or so of gossip while this, this is agony forever. My son is dead. My son. These last few years, he hasn't even been my son. He's been a rabbi. I I swear, some of the things he says, I can't imagine where he learned them from. I've never heard anything like it. I felt the stirring of conviction in my soul. I, I know he speaks. Spoke truth. But it was hard to see him slip away from me like that. I, I've turned from his mother into an object lesson. Once I took my other boys with me to go get Jesus, take him home for a little rest. He had been pushing himself so hard lately. We, we just wanted to see him, to have a few days with him. We couldn't get to him because of the crowd, so I sent John to go, to go find him, to go get him. And, and what response did we get? Who is my mother? And who are my brothers? I felt like shouting, I am your mother. These, these are your brothers. Don't you acknowledge your own family anymore? But I didn't. I knew what he was saying. I knew Jesus loved us. He built a new family. A family of souls. Those who do God's will. And I was included in this family as well. The way he spoke, I've, I've never known anyone who spoke truth like Jesus did. It was more than a gift. It was a holy calling, and I knew truth when I heard it, even if it came from the lips of my baby boy. My Jesus. He's dead. My son is dead. My teacher is dead. I am so angry. God, why would you do this? Give me this gift, this man, this son, and then take him away before the fullness of your promise. Why Why would you promise so much and then yank it all away from me before the fullness of time? Why is Jesus? 
said. And how could you allow these people, these people you sent him to save, how could you stand by as they shouted, crucify him? Why would they want to crucify him? Maybe this is what Simeon meant. When Jesus was only eight days old, we we brought him to the temple and and he held Jesus in his arms, this man, Simeon, and, and he prophesied. And he finished with saying, and a sword will pierce your own soul too. This certainly feels like a sword. That image of Jesus, my child, dying on the cross, it has cut me in two. Oh Lord God, I I don't understand what you have done. I don't understand why you would promise and then take back the gift you gave, but I know my duty to my son. Tomorrow morning I will go and prepare his body for burial. I can do that much as his mother, as his disciple. Thank you, Carrie. been in a series looking at Mary's life and her devotion to Jesus, being devoted to God's plan. I want to invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to John chapter 2. We'll be there in just a few moments. John chapter 2, as we continue looking at what Jesus wants to say to us today, as we see how Mary responded in her humanness I believe the Lord could speak to us. Heavenly Father, I thank you. You could have come, Jesus, in in any way. Father, I thank you. You could have displayed your power and your glory in any way, but, but you chose to send your son in the form of a baby, in the context of a family, right in the middle of the nitty gritty of life. Lord, would you help us see today you are still coming to us in the very real, tangible places in our life. So we open our hearts and minds to your truth. Speak to us, Lord. We are listening. Amen. Amen. At every unexpected turn of events in her life, Jesus' mother, Mary, responded with faith. Even in moments like we just saw depicted in in this skit. Have you enjoyed these skits? Our own Jamie Wright has been writing these and pulling these together and using her creative imagination with what the Scripture tells us. Even in these moments when, when she must not have understood, her faith in Jesus didn't waver. As she watched her own son grow in wisdom and in stature, she realized more and more that he was his father's son, not just her own. There's two early events that happened in Jesus' ministry that reminds us of this very real thing. And I want us to look at those today. The first will be in John chapter 2. In each case, Jesus made statements showing that his attention had shifted 
to higher priorities. He was no longer just thinking or acting as Mary's son, but he is shifting into the role that the Father has planned for him in his public ministry. Even shifting in this sacrifice of family relationships. See, we find that Mary had to face the reality that God's purpose for Jesus was more important than her own mother and son relationship that they shared. Unlike any other person in history, Mary had to relinquish her own son to follow her son, the Christ, to become one of his disciples. I want us to look at Jesus' first miracle. It's in John chapter 2. I'll be starting at verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Chapter 2, verse 4. Dear woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, My time has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, Now draw some out of it and take it to the master of the banquet. So they did. And the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Skipping down to verse 11, This, the first of the miraculous signs Jesus performed in Cana and Galilee, He thus revealed His glory and His disciples put their faith in Him. You see, Jesus, His first miracle, there is this transition in Jesus' relationships that's taking place right before our eyes. If you're taking notes, that's the first blank there. It's in relationships. Things are shifting. Things are deepening. Things are becoming more interesting. At the beginning of his public ministry, Jesus is attending this wedding at Cana with his family, with his disciples. During the festivities, this crisis occurs. The host had run out of wine. Mary's deep concern about the lack of wine may seem out of proportion to us, may seem an overstatement. What's her deal? Why is she so worried about this? But in the first century, her distress was absolutely justified. Weddings at that time and the ceremony at that time was even more important than wedding ceremonies and the celebration is today. As important as they are today, it was at a whole nother level then. The celebration itself was a significant event, not only for the bride and the groom, but for the family and all the extended family. And running out of wine was not just a major embarrassment for the host. In fact, a failure in this important aspect of a celebration, some historians suggest that the family, the groom's family, would even be liable for lawsuit from other family members that this was such a crisis. And so we see that Mary has a concern. If you're taking notes, jot that down. Well, I want to look at this passage of Scripture. We see Jesus is transitioning in relationships, and Mary has this concern. What's her concern? She's asking for help in this embarrassing and dishonoring family crisis. I love the fact that Jesus is showing up on the scene in the midst of family times. 
this birth, when we think of the nativity scene, this is a family birth. This is, this is a time where there's family that gathers around. This scene that we saw last week where Jesus is on this family trip and he gets lost on the family trip. Jesus is involved in the real life, everyday things. And this wedding celebration, this family gathering, is no different. In the midst of that family gathering, Mary does what would seem to be a good thing to do. There's a family crisis. Jesus, help! Now Jesus' response reveals that the purpose that governed his actions was beyond just Mary's concern. And when he said, woman, what does this have to do with me? The NIV makes it a little bit softer than what it is. Dear woman, they're trying to help us, and I'll talk about why they do that in a minute. But, but the, the literal translation it, it seems a little bit more harsh than that. My hour has not yet come. Mary's statement in verse 3, we have no more wine, prompts Jesus to respond in this unexpected way. Woman, why have you involved me? Now, in our English translation, we see this tone as harsh, something you shouldn't say. Jesus, we don't say that at family gatherings. Now, I don't know about you, but our culture is all thinking towards family gatherings this week. Whether you have a family to gather with for Thanksgiving meal, whether you are looking forward to great times, or you just wish it would just pass, you're not looking forward to great times. Whether you have lots of people to be with or whether you feel isolated or alone, our culture is indoctrinated. This is a time that we get together, we eat together, we spend time together. And I, I remember many family gatherings when something was said that should not have been said in that family gathering. When uh, Carrie and I were early in, in, in our marriage, uh, Carrie was pregnant with Caden and uh, we had gone home for a holiday time. We came into my parents' entryway, and I'll never forget how my dad greeted Carrie. As Carrie came in, she was very much with child, and he said, Hey, Blimp, how are you? Now, in my family, that wouldn't have been that big of a deal. This was not a good thing to say. So, this Thanksgiving, if you're gathering with people, and any of them are pregnant, do not use the word blimp. This is not advisable. We don't say those things. I'll never forget a vivid Thanksgiving memory for me. Uh, it was a time when all of our family, extended family, came together, and we had done Christmas just before Thanksgiving, and I had received amazing gifts. I had my very own cowboy cap gun. I had that strapped to my waist. I wasn't going to part with it. I had my very own replica Olivet Nazarene University football helmet that I could put on my head. It was a child size, and I had that on my helmet, sitting at the kids' table at Thanksgiving, happier than any 10-year-old could ever be. With my cap gun strapped on and my football helmet on my head, thinking of all the westerns that I'd been watching, as my mother walked by with the green beans, I couldn't help. It came out. I said, hey, sonny boy, how about some more green beans? Which cued my mom to grab me by the face mask, pull me into the other room, and let me know we don't refer to mom as, hey, sonny boy. Well, when we hear this, woman, why does this concern me? We think, Jesus, you can't say that at a family gathering. You're, you're, you're getting ready for a bad Thanksgiving. Don't do this. But that's not the context. Our cultural distance, we could confuse that. But what's happening here, Jesus wasn't being rude. He was simply inflexible. The literal translation, why do you involve me? Or literally, what do I have in common? What do we have in common in this? Or a paraphrase, how can this matter concern you be of mutual interest to us? Jesus is saying, Mother, I love you, 
but I've got to be about the Father's business. Remember the conversation when he was in the temple as a kid? In John's Gospel, when Jesus alludes to the hour has not come, he's talking about his death, his resurrection, the ascension. And the use of this term here, the hour has not yet come, signifies the direction in which Jesus is thinking. His mind is turning towards Jerusalem to fulfilling the purpose he came to earth for, the purpose of redemption for all mankind. His focus trumps the concerns of not only his mother, but the host and anyone else. Now, Mary's request for activity sets up this ironic spin. It's interesting because Jesus eventually, as we just read, He does the miracle. He does the act. But Jesus' act will not be simply on behalf of the wedding party, the host, the family. But in essence, he's doing this miracle on behalf of the entire world. If we we see this symbolism here of turning water into wine, and later it's a whole other sermon and talking about the fruit of the vine and communion and the three days and all these things. But here we see that Jesus' miracle, it's far more than just wine for a wedding. He will give salvation for all mankind. Jesus responds to Mary's concern. What's his response? Why do you involve me? Now, when Mary hears this, She responds in faith. She doesn't understand everything, just like the skit we just saw. She doesn't understand everything. She's probably bewildered by it, but yet, when in doubt, look at the command she gives. She tells the servants, out of confusion and most likely anticipation, whatever he, Jesus, says to you, do it. When I don't understand what's going on, when I've cried out, and and Jesus is responding in ways I, I don't quite get, Formally, firmly, woman, why would this concern me? I don't know, Jesus, but guys, do whatever he tells you. Obey Jesus. When I don't understand what's happening around me, obey Jesus. When there's a family crisis and I don't see the answer, obey Jesus. See, Mary's action is important for us to see what's happening in the context of this story. Jesus' first recorded miracle isn't meant to convince the masses. It's intended to confirm to his disciples that he is the Messiah. The sign that he performs at this wedding, it authenticates that he is from God. By the time that the disciples leave Cana, they are truly convinced because Jesus had revealed his glory. See, this initial shift in his ministry, it's subtle, but it's very distinct. It marks a transition in these relationships. As we saw in John 2, 4, his focus is no longer on the matters that may concern a firstborn son primarily, but on the heavenly father's design for redemption. That gets to Jesus' purpose. Jesus acted, and he acted not just on behalf of the wedding, but on behalf of the entire world, his death on the cross would prove to be more valuable than the wine he miraculously created. Now, I think there's a takeaway for us here. There's three key thoughts I want us to look at, and this is the first of the, of the three, and we're spending a little bit more time on the first one, but it's this. When Jesus takes action, it will always be to see the will of the Father done. When Jesus was doing this miracle, it wasn't just because he was going to try to ease somebody's discomfort or he was just going to kind of entertain the crowd. He wasn't the the hired hand here to just do the magic show for everybody. He was acting on behalf of the Father's will. Woman, what does this need have anything to do with my purpose? 
I believe the heart of Jesus was touched when she just said, Obey Jesus, servants, whatever he says do it. He obviously saw that he could fulfill the will of the Father by doing this miracle, but he was drawing attention to Mary and maybe others around listening. Hey, hey, I act on behalf of the will of the Father. So I ask you this. And what you're asking Jesus for, what your prayer requests are, how could Jesus be glorified in what you are asking of Him? Or are your prayers so self-centered, it's so on you, it's so much what you want, that you don't even begin to think about how Jesus could be glorified in what it is you're asking Him to do? Just put a bookmark there. We'll think about that in a few moments. I want you to turn with me now to Mark chapter 3, our second passage of Scripture. And we see that Jesus is not only transitioning relationships, Jesus' true family he talks about. Jesus now redefines family. If you're taking notes, jot that down. He redefines family. What do you mean? Well, let's look at Mark chapter 3, verse 20. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered, so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him. <laughs> this is code for grab him by the arm, walk him out, grab him by the face mask of the helmet. We don't say those kind of things. Take charge of him. They said, he is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So then Jesus calls them out and he rebukes them and does some teaching. Let's skip down to verse 31. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived, standing outside. They sent someone in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and brothers? Jesus asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. See, by the time we reach this incident in Mark's gospel, the rift has developed between Jesus and his family. It's intense. You thought you've been at some intense family gatherings, some intense Thanksgiving. Jesus knows what it's like to be there when family's not getting along. The, the, the calm meal is no longer calm. Now sparks are starting to fly. After Jesus returns home from his early evangelistic work, a great crowd follows him. They clamor him to see him. Apparently those who knew Jesus before his ministry thought that he was out of his mind, thought he was crazy. And they appeal to the family, please rein him in. He's an embarrassment to us and the whole community. Everybody's going to know he came from Nazareth. His family complies with the request, showing that they don't fully understand him. And here now, Jesus is going to tell us something about his biological family, his bloodline family. Jesus' family, his very own bloodline family, tried to keep him quiet, either, best case scenario, out of a noble, misguided desire to protect him from any danger or protect him from himself, or I would think maybe more likely a less noble desire to salvage the family reputation. That's what his own bloodline family was doing. At this point, the rift between Jesus and his family widens, and he redefines who his family is when he says, for whoever does the will of God, this person is my brother, my sister, my mother. What's Jesus saying? Jesus loves his family. 
It's not that he didn't love Mary. It's not that he didn't love his family. But he loves them so much. He doesn't want them just to be dependent on their bloodline relationship. He wants them to obey God more than to depend on their own biological relationship. In other words, Jesus is saying, you need to follow me, be my disciple. That's way more important than being my sibling. Way more important than being my mother or being my father. It's all centered on the Father, the Heavenly Father, and your relationship as a disciple to me. That was Jesus' point. And although Mary doesn't understand the full scope of what God is doing, she appears eventually to accept Jesus, and she becomes a disciple of Jesus. She's listed as the one who's at the cross. She's one of the female followers. She becomes a disciple of Jesus before she dies. In the Gospels, there's priority given to Mary's identity as a disciple of Jesus and a servant of God, not so much the status of her being the mother of Jesus. And in comes this key thought that Jesus is redefining. It's this idea of a spiritual family. What is he talking about? Jesus redefines his family by whoever does the will of God. He loves his family, but he desires that they obey God before they depend on those relationships. Have you ever met somebody who you're not blood related to that you maybe haven't known for a long time, but they love Jesus in a way, they live for Jesus in a way, they're obedient to Jesus in a way that you just feel like you've known them forever. Your hearts just click. You just feel like, that's my tribe. That's my people. Jesus is saying, to be a part of my family, you need to be obedient to me. It's about discipleship to me. He's exploding the idea of what real family is about. It's more than just bloodline. A takeaway for us is this. We need to be reminded, just as Mary was reminded, to be part of the family of God has nothing to do with bloodlines and everything to do with accepting Jesus and following Him as a disciple. Friend, if you call yourself a Christian, it better not be because that's what mom and dad were. It better not be because that's what you fill your calendar with as Christian activities. It shouldn't have anything to do with the people sitting around you. Well, I'm a Christian because they are. Friend, it's because you have a relationship with Jesus and you're an obedient disciple. That's the only answer that says... I am or you are a child of God. Now, don't misunderstand this. Every person you lock eyes with today, any day, every person you lock eyes with, they are valuable to God. He created them. He loves them. He sent His Son to die for them. But Scripture is clear. You may not like it, but I'm going to tell you anyway. To be a child of God means I am born again. We are not all in the world children of God. We're all His creation. He loves us. He has died for us. But to be a child of God, to be in His family, it's in my relationship to Jesus Christ. This is what Jesus was driving home. Brothers, sisters, mom, don't lean on the family card. Lean on relationship with me. Obedience to the Father. Doing the will of the Father. So I ask you, Are you truly living a personal relationship with Jesus as an obedient disciple? Or are you trying to ride on the coattails of someone else? Or are you trying to just depend on this is what the family does? This is what the wise hearts do. This is what the Finks do. This is what the Jones do. This is what the Arbuckles do. This is just just who we are. We're just Christian people. Jesus says, no, 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 no. My family are those who are obedient to the Father. 
Let's look at a third passage, our final passage of Scripture. It's in Matthew chapter 10. Jesus begins to say some more things that could make Thanksgiving meal even more intense. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And Jesus is defining here this new idea of family, this new idea of what it means to follow him. It's a call to discipleship. The Bible teaches us that sacrifice is a requirement, a part of this relationship with God. It shouldn't be a surprise to us. Because God himself made the greatest sacrifice when he gave what was most valuable to him, his son, to die on the cross. You see, the Messiah, Jesus, was forced to sacrifice one of his relationships with his mother to say, it's not even about my own family, it's about you redeeming all humanity. Although Jesus valued family, he valued obedience to the Father even more. This meant sacrificing family relationships. His family attempted to restrain him during his ministry in Mark 3. They wouldn't understand his true role until after the resurrection. Sacrifice was required. When I met my father-in-law for the first time, he wasn't my father-in-law, Carrie's dad, Randy, I heard the story of how he accepted Christ and accepted his call to ministry. Randy was part of a ranching, farming family in Ainsworth, Nebraska. It's still, to this day, the largest privately owned ranch in the state of Nebraska. And he was a part of quite a conglomerate. And when he was saved and he accepted his call into ministry, he was preparing and he told his family, I've got to go to Colorado Springs and train for ministry. I'm going to go to the Nazarene Bible College. They looked at him and said, you are out of your mind. You're going to leave all of this. You're going to leave this wealth. He was not only in line to inherit part of the family business. He was in line to inherit a big chunk of money. You're going to leave all this. He drew a line in the sand. You leave. You leave this. He said, I've got to obey God more than just please my family. Sacrifice is required of those who follow Jesus. Jesus loves his family, but he desires that they obey the Father more than depend on bloodline relationships. At times, radical love and devotion result in estrangement from our family. Jesus said that his followers must be willing to make that sacrifice. That's what he said in Matthew 10. He knew firsthand what it was like. In John 7, 5, we read, For even Jesus' own brothers did not believe in him. For Mary... This decision meant to accept that God's purpose for Jesus was more important than her mother-son relationship. Part of her devotion to God's plan would include relinquishing her son to God's purposes so that the world could know God's love. We have to be dedicated to God and love God so much that by comparison, it just seems like we don't love our family. That's that radical devotion A takeaway for us is to be a child of God means we are to be disciples of Jesus. Discipleship to Jesus means nothing, nothing is more important in our lives than living in obedience to Him. So I ask you, I ask myself, what price are you willing to pay to follow Jesus? 
Matthew 16, 24. Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good would it be for a man to lose, to gain the whole world, and yet forfeit or lose his soul? And here's what I think the Lord may be wanting to say to us. If Jesus is going to be a part of the family, I think Mary would say, he's got to be the center. It's not just about blood relationships. It's about him being the king of kings and lord of lords. It trumps everything else. I think some of you, when you hear this message today, the Lord could bring some encouragement to you. Some of you are not looking forward to Thanksgiving. You feel like you're going to be all alone. You feel like your family doesn't understand you. The Lord wants to say to you, I understand. I know that. I get it. I've had my family reject me. I know what it's like to be lonely. The Son of Man has no place to lay his head, Scripture tells us. He felt homeless. His hometown rejected him. If you're here today and your loved ones have passed on and you don't feel like you have anybody to connect to, know that you are in good company. Jesus says, I know what it's like to be alone. But take heart. You have a family in believers. You have a family not just in Grace Point, but beyond this, anybody who does the will of the Father, you doing the will of the Father, you are in this family that is deeper than bloodlines. Some of you are getting ready to go into family gatherings and, and your whole family loves Jesus. What would it look like this Thanksgiving for you to recognize that it's not just that your family, you know, just gels together and just loves hanging out together. What if you would acknowledge the sweetest part of getting with your family is when a father tells his son, look who Jesus is. Look what God is doing in my midst of my life. Look what he's saying to me. And what would happen if a daughter would say to a mother, Mom, I can't believe it. I'm so dependent on Jesus in this area. And look at what he's doing. When we begin to honor God by being obedient to the Father, that relationship gets deeper. For some of us, I think Jesus wants to invade that family gathering just like he did a wedding. You may come across a crisis It's embarrassing, Jesus. We need you to show up. It's not working in so-and-so's life. How could Jesus be glorified at your Thanksgiving? Others of you, as you get ready to go out and you'll spend time with family, part of you know Jesus and others don't. Maybe you could just take what some of my brothers and I have been dealing with. We call it question two. It's where we're looking at what Jesus has been doing. Why don't you just ask them, what's the best thing that you've seen? In your life this year. The book of James says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Lord. Say, you know what? Whether you believe in Him or not, that's from God. Now, you may have to search. They may give you some things that they think are good, but it's not truly good. But they can come up with something truly good and allow this to point them back to Jesus. Because this gathering shouldn't just be about bloodline. It shouldn't just be about, well, we're in-laws. It shouldn't just be that we're required to sit here and eat turkey together. But what could it be if we would allow Jesus to invade this family gathering just like he did? Now, here's what it looked like. It's going to take sacrifice. It's going to take devotion. It's going to take putting him above everything else. In comparison, it'll be like you don't even love your family. You love your family, but in comparison, you love Jesus so much. Heavenly Father, I thank you for the attention of my brothers and sisters today to your word. If we've been walking through the story of, real life story of Mary, watching her encounter you, Jesus, 
watching you grow in wisdom and stature. Seeing that her surrender would be new and new and new and more and more. I thank you, Jesus, that you have proven yourself faithful, not just to Mary, not just to the disciples, not just to those who've gone before us, not just to our family. You've proven yourself faithful to us again and again today. So, Jesus, would you help us right now today to cry out to you for our concern? But would you help us be aware of how you could bring glory to yourself, not just solve our problem? Would you help us, Jesus, put you first in a way that that there's nothing more important than you? Jesus, would you allow us to join you not only in your resurrection, but as we've been learning in the last week to join you in your suffering as well as in your resurrection. Thank you for what you're teaching us. Lord, I'm confident you're not done, even though our time is done this morning, you're not done teaching us. Would you continue to lead us in this truth? Amen and amen. Church, would you stand with me? If you're here today and you say, well, if that's what it means to be in the family of God, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I don't know if If I have that kind of relationship with Jesus, before you leave, come talk with me. I'd love to talk with you about having a personal relationship with Jesus. Don't wait till after the holidays. Don't wait till another time. This could be the day that changes your life for all eternity. I would love to talk to you about a relationship with Jesus. Second, if you're here today, you say, I love Jesus. He's my Savior. But if you can't answer the question... Who's discipling you? Who's helping you get closer to Jesus? Who's helping you live as an obedient disciple? I'd love to talk with you about a discipleship relationship. Don't put it off. Come, let's talk. I want to enter into prayer with you. For the rest of you, as you go, you engage family or the lack thereof. Know that you have a body of believers that's dedicated to being obedient to the Father that trumps everything else. Go take that love to your family. Have a blessed day. You're dismissed.